Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my best friend, Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey, Glenn. Good morning. Yeah. Well, good, mo- good morning for me, bright and early. Right. Well, you know what? It's just turned. In fact, it's. I'm looking at my clock here, and it's telling me it's quarter past 11, but my clock hasn't been turned forward. We went forward an hour this week, and it's a beautiful, bright day. Spring has definitely sprung. Spirits are starting to bubble. There's expectations that the world is going to get a better place. People are getting vaccinated. Our hopes are things are going to be different in the very, very near future. Golf clubs are starting to open, which... Mm. people like me seem to enjoy what about yourself how's things over there yeah good it's a bright and early little after 7 a.m morning weather's really kind of cold here actually we had a, a freeze warning it's april 2nd and in north carolina that's a bit rare to have freeze mm. warnings this late but yeah things seem to be turning a little bit more hope with maybe some pushback on the hope too you know caution about other variants and new strains and this and that overall vaccinations are rolling out here and the kids our kids are going back in school four days a week starting in two weeks so that's pretty significant at least for our region i know that's not an easy decision for the schools to make but yeah things are beginning to inch forward maybe so it'll probably be closer to may by the time people first hear this episode and we hope everyone is doing well and Staying safe. So you're all very welcome to this episode, and we're delighted to introduce Dr. Roy Stein to the podcast. Hello, Roy. Hi. Good morning. Great, glad to, be great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. So, as we were saying just off air before we came on, as we normally do in each episode, is we just say hello, and we're curious about your journey into motivation. And before we find out a bit more about yourself and your work with opioid and and stimulant use disorders. Appreciate being here. And I was thinking back to how did I find my way into motivational interviewing? I feel like I'm a little bit unusual in the MI world because I'm a psychiatrist. And there are certainly there's a lot of interest in motivational interviewing now within psychiatry. But I find, say, within motivational interviewing network of trainers or in the people who are more actively involved, I'm often the only psychiatrist in the room. So my background and path is a little different. I was thinking back when I was growing up, I think, I don't know exactly how I got exposed, but I was made aware of the thinking of philosopher Martin Buber and his so-called I-thou or I-you philosophy, as opposed to the I-it relationship. I hope I'm not going too far on a tangent, but the idea of an I-you relationship is between oneself and the other, fully appreciating the other person's existence is reality as a fully experiencing entity versus an I-it relationship where 
I would relate to the other person as an it, as an object to act upon. And somehow in my growing up, that was really stressed for me or or resonated for me that that's how one should live one's life. And so I think that does kind of provide a foundation that leads one to be very open to motivational interviewing. And then the next step, I suppose, was as a freshman in a freshman psychology course at the University of Alabama, where I grew up. I was introduced to the client-centered therapy of Carl Rogers and a humanistic approach to working with people. And that, I think, sunk in. That, That was a foundational experience. And then the next thing is I think about experiences leading in this direction is when I was in medical school. And this suggests that somehow I was ripe for motivational interviewing, even though I don't know that it had been developed at this point, is as a third-year medical student, I was in a volunteer group that wanted to do some outreach into the community, do something useful beyond medical school. And my role was to volunteer as the science teacher for a seventh grade class in a public junior high school. And uh, so I was given an hour with these kids every day for a week. And the topic was use of tobacco and alcohol, hoping that we would prevent kids from getting involved. So I went to the pathology lab at the hospital. I knew the people there. I was able to borrow from them a lung with a big cancer in it and a liver with cirrhosis, as well as a normal liver in glass cases with formaldehyde. And I thought, man, this is really going to shock these kids and, you know, look what can happen to your organs. And so I brought all this over to the school and then I'm at the blackboard and I was also doing pros and cons of, let's say, smoking. So I was already into decisional balance at this point. I had all the kind of stuff that I could come up with, but of course I invited them to share their pros and cons. And the one item that really made an impact was a girl got up and said, well, the bad thing about smoking is that if you kiss a boy uh, who smokes, it really stinks. And that really got everyone's attention. And so, you know, it was a, a lesson about what I came in with as a future health professional and what I thought was important and would resonate was not what got their attention. It wasn't the lung cancer in the case or the cirrhotic liver or you're going to die. It's this could impact on your seventh grade romantic life. So I think that just kind of goes to show that we need to hear from people what's important to them, what's going to drive their behavior, because often it's very, very different than what we're going to uh, see as the key issue. Then the next thing in, in my path was in residency, it tells you that I'm how old I am, but a lot of my most respected and revered teachers and supervisors were from a psychoanalytic orientation. I'm not a psychoanalyst, but I was exposed to that way of approaching things. And particularly the work of the psychiatrist Karen Horney and also one named Heinz Kohut, K-O-H-U-T, that people may or may not be familiar with. Uh, Kohut was very much involved in what's known as self-psychology. And what stood out for me with Kohut was the absolute importance of accurate empathy and mirroring in therapy, that that was right at the core of working with people. And Kohut described empathy as the tool par excellence, which allows the creation of a relationship between patient and, in this case, analyst. He defined empathy as the capacity to think and feel oneself into the inner life of another person. 
So this was the stuff that kind of really resonated for me as I was genuinely becoming a psychiatrist. And then finally, he talked about empathy as what allows an individual to know another's experience without losing one's objectivity. And so I'd say I was brought up in that way of looking at things. So then I went on to start practicing psychiatry. I sort of by chance got involved in working with people with alcohol and drug problems in a veterans affairs hospital uh, in the United States. And I will tell you that at that time, the thinking was about people coming in for alcohol or drug treatment is they were either ready, they were either motivated for treatment and change, do you want to get off alcohol and drugs or not? It was not to condemn them if they didn't, but if they basically said, no, I don't think I really am uh, you know, ready to do this, then our response, our well-intended response was, well, okay, we understand it's your choice. Sounds like you're not ready for treatment, so please come back when you're ready. Goodbye. You know, we wish you well, but come back when you're ready. That was the thinking. We're talking uh, early eight, 1980s. That was how we operated. You either are or are not ready for change. And so then somewhere along the way there, I got exposed to a presentation from uh, a group at the Medical University of South Carolina. They were part of Project MATCH, which was M-A-T-C-H, which was a very large multi-center trial that was really what demonstrated that a motivational interviewing-based intervention could be just as effective with very few sessions as some more intensive treatments for alcohol use disorder. I think that's what really rocketed motivational interviewing into having a lot of attention because they showed that four sessions of the MI-based intervention were as effective as 12 sessions of a cognitive behavioral or 12-step oriented intervention. People say, oh, wow, if you can do this in four sessions, that's really great. And I think that really expanded MIs in the professional world. So anyway, the group at Medical University of South Carolina was one of the MET, Motivational Enhancement Therapy, sites. And that was really the first time I ever heard a presentation, and it made a lot of sense to me. Then, a little bit later, I was very fortunate that, uh, this was in the year 2000, that Kathy Cole, who is a very active MI trainer and active member in this community, was a colleague of mine at the Durham VA Medical Center where I worked. She was a social worker and I was a psychiatrist. And she told me about an opportunity to apply to be a subject in a study of training methods for motivational interviewing. I applied and I was accepted. So I I got to go and have a three-day training by some of the top people in the field as a research subject. Uh, I was lucky enough in the randomization that I was randomized to get the full training and coaching versus just being sent the tapes to watch. And that really opened my eyes to motivational interviewing. And what I really want to stress from that training is at this point, I'd been a psychiatrist in practice for 15 years And I felt like I was a pretty humanistic guy. I mean, I felt like I listened carefully to patients. I think I'm pretty good with empathy and all this, relatively speaking. But when they put us through the various exercises on reflective listening and really honing down on the skill of excellent reflective listening, I found out, wow, maybe I'm not as great at this as I thought. Maybe there's a lot more I can develop around this skill. And the other thing, of course, I ran into is my question habit, my habit of asking lots of questions, 
was something that I could really work on. So the basic philosophy, the attitude, the approach of MI seemed very familiar, seemed very natural to me. I think it was a good fit for me. But what I really appreciated was they're saying, here's how we can offer you ways of being so much more effective in functioning with patients when you do come from that MI spirit. The other thing that was a challenge for me initially was this teaching that to be hesitant uh, about giving advice and information because I am medically trained and I was brought up, I took Latin when I was uh, in high school and doctor, the word doctor means teacher in Latin. So I was very much brought up in the idea that one of the really good things we do as doctors is to teach our patients. I mean, I think that seems like a moral and ethical desirable thing that we inform our patients. So the idea that I was being told that you should ask permission to give information seemed a little bit hokey to me. This was unfamiliar. But as I started to try it out and started to fit it into the bigger framework of motivational learning, now it makes complete sense and it's become, but that, that was the biggest sort of change in approach is the idea that just giving people information without permission is something that one could, could make a change. So anyway, to wrap up this part of the story, so I got this MI training, and then I was lucky enough to get the train the trainer training, but I didn't really have a, a huge opportunity to do a lot with it other than in my own practice and in teaching medical students and residents until the BA in about 2011 decided to really implement MI training on a large scale throughout the VA system. And the, the VA, the Veterans Affairs system, is one of the largest healthcare systems probably in the world. And so then they looked around for people in who are already working for the VA who are familiar with MI and could train people. So that really launched me into a, a very rewarding 10 years of active training of VA healthcare and substance use disorder staff. And I've learned a lot and gained a lot from that, particularly because it involved coaching the six-month consultation phase after an intensive training. I've been very, very fortunate in the opportunities to develop as an MI practitioner and trainer. So that's kind of a long story. Now, a year ago, I moved into a clinic at the University of North Carolina that really focuses on medication treatment for people with opioid use disorder. And that kind of brings us to today's topic. Wow. Thanks for that really rich story. And you know, one of the things that struck me about it was a lot of these time points that you described were experiences where you know, you could have approached an experience as an expert. So like even as a third year medical student, and you maybe didn't feel quite like an expert in that sense, but you know, I can just picture you, you know, excitedly going to the pathology lab with this wonderful idea that's surely going to knock the socks off of yes. kids who are just using substances that they have no idea what the harm that's going to come to them. And I imagine it took quite a bit of effort on your part to gather all the materials and bring them over and have this big reveal and come to find out that the biggest impact is stinky breath when, when someone tries to kiss somebody. And, but just other examples, too, where what you were saying about you know, the idea of doctor as a teacher, and that was something that you really valued tremendously later into your career, but still being open to the possibility that not to disregard that completely, just like you might not disregard the potential impact of showing somebody a cirrhotic liver and, and that mm -hmm. might have some impact, but just being willing to 
have some a different perspective influence you and affect kind of how you operate, I imagine just as a great foundation in the day-to-day work that you have, you know, you might have a sense of what another person needs to do to get better. And they might have some other kind of input or some other parts of their story that since you are kind of open to receiving different points of view, that it would just naturally contribute to a, a more productive session and then ultimately a more productive career, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I guess, as you mentioned, that, I still would link it back to this sort of I, thou, or I, you concept that you're not an it. The patient or the student is not an it that I'm simply there to act upon, but I have to be fully, or one has to be fully open to understanding their experience. So the information that you picked up, it sounds like you were blending both the information that you would get from the I-thou with the medical training that you were having. Potentially, the message was the I-it. You're integrating the two, so you're endeavoring to offer support, but you were always open to the possibility that the other person had something to offer and so mm-hmm. that's what Seb was identifying there, that, you know, as the teacher, you remain teachable and yes. you went along and you've kept your eyes and ears open for what it was that the environment, what research, and very importantly for you now as well, is what the clients or the patients are teaching you about what it is they need or what it is they want. And it sounds like that's where motivational Living fitted very well for you. Yes. That motivational Living came to you and fitted what was already there. It didn't have to change an awful lot about you because it was it was consistent with the nature of who you are and what it was you were trying to do with the patients that you were working with already. I would say that MI Spirit, I felt just immediately, yes, that's I, I'm in the right place with MI Spirit. But the technical aspects I found very helpful. And the other thing I, I would say, you know, again, coming from a medical background, is MI really blends this genuine, deep humanistic spirit and appreciation of the other with a real focus on empirical research to understand the mechanisms and the the linguistic aspects of how to be most effective in bringing about change. So this blending of humanism and a scientific approach, you know, just naturally felt like, oh, this seems right to me. And I think that's a big appeal for a lot of people who are in helping professions is it validates their basic humanistic desire to appreciate and respect the other but also brings scientific objectivity to it. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. It feels good and we can cite evidence to suggest that yeah, mm-hmm. actually, this stuff actually works uh, and is helpful mm-hmm. for people. I feel the need to follow up with what you said about Kathy Cole. You may have mentioned this or not. You're in Durham, North Carolina. Right, right? Right. And, and so, and I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Kathy seemed to be a big influence for you, or at least a, an important person in your yeah, MI yeah. journey. Same for me. I consider her my first MI mentor, and I took my first trainings with her. So anyway, just want to maybe acknowledge Kathy since she was influential to both yeah, of us. Yeah, she really opened a door for me that then led to a lot of wonderful experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the few handful of people I can say changed the course of my mm-hmm. of my life, really. So very grateful for Kathy. Yes. So let's transition into the, the main topic here, which is working with people who have opioid use disorders and stimulant use disorders. Mm-hmm. We could sort of talk about these difficulties separately, but also there's there's some kind of overlap when people are struggling with both kinds of substances that present in kind of a unique way. So 
again, many of the people listening may not have a medical background. And, and so maybe it would be helpful to break down in small steps. When you say the word opioid use disorder, or even the word opioid versus the word stimulant, could you just give us a brief summary sure. of what, what these substances yeah. are the and, opio- and perhaps opioid. what they do to, sure. to people that are, are using them? Opioids refers to any substances that bind to or interact with so-called opioid receptors, which are in our brains and throughout our bodies. Some of the common opioids include medications that are legally prescribed, like morphine and oxycodone and a variety of other pain medications that have been used for hundreds of years. So there are legal, very effective pain medications who have an appropriate role in healthcare. It also includes drugs like heroin that I think are familiar that are, well, actually, I think it, it is legally used possibly in the UK, but in any event, it's primarily uh, used as a street drug. So the effects of opioids are to create euphoria, just a wonderful, pleasant feeling that people describe as sort of like no other, but also to relieve pain, which is why it's used medically. But in larger amounts, it depresses respiration and can have other profound negative effects on function. And ultimately, if a person uses too much of an opioid, then it will stop their breathing and they will die. The other thing is that opioids can induce a very strong addictive property wherein if the person stops using, they go into a severe withdrawal state of having extremely unpleasant physical symptoms and intense drug craving. They just feel like they're dying. And that is once they have reached that state after prolonged use and then have withdrawal, they will do just about anything to get another dose simply to not feel sick. And often when people have reached that level of addiction, their use is driven more just to avoid being quote unquote sick, as they will put it, rather than that they're even enjoying the drug use anymore. They started out using it to get high, and that may or may not continue, but at a certain point, it really becomes just that they rely on it to function. They have to have it. So that's opioids. So they they do carry a very real risk of overdose death. And a lot of the sustained use is driven by physical addiction and avoidance of withdrawal. The other problem with a lot of opioid use is people often progress to injecting it. People can take opioids by mouth, or they can smoke it, or they can sniff it through their nose. But probably the most dangerous form of use is intravenous injection with a needle. And then once you get into that, That behavior carries a tremendous number of risks of infection, acquiring hepatitis C, acquiring HIV, bacterial infections. At that point, it's the root of administration. It's the injection behavior as opposed to the drug itself that causes a lot of very, very uh, serious problems. So that's opioid use disorder. Stimulants refers to uh, medications that stimulate the nervous system And the ones we typically think of here are amphetamine and methamphetamine. So they tend to make people more alert. They also induce euphoria. Of course, another stimulant that's widely used is cocaine. So cocaine, amphetamine, methamphetamine are the stimulants that we worry about. So they have kind of the opposite effect in terms of making people more activated, uh, not needing sleep, 
but they do also induce euphoria. They don't have as much of the physical withdrawal after a person becomes addicted, like heroin, let's say. But what they do have is when the person has really gotten involved in it, they have really, really intense drug craving. And they can be exposed to reminders of previous use that will induce really intense craving. We call it cue-induced craving. So for example, a person who's become addicted to cocaine or methamphetamine, if they have a bunch of cash, if they if you were to hand them a hundred dollar bill, and there's very good evidence, scientific evidence for this, that could trigger really, really intense, almost irresistible desire to use because for them, cash has been converted to drug and then the drug affecting their brain. Another problem with stimulants is often people wind up using cocaine or methamphetamine to enhance sexual pleasure and sexual activity. So those two activities of sex and the drug use become very intertwined. So then that's another big trigger. It's very hard for them to go back and have a normal sex life without enhancing it with the drug. So they're both very addictive in somewhat different ways, the opiates and the stimulants. Really quite complex situations that you find yourself in as a helping practitioner involved with supporting people who have discovered a drug either to make them feel a real sense of painlessness or an absence of pain and an existence of euphoria or a, a drug that makes them feel activated and energized and is related to things that they enjoy. And then to come along and meet someone like you say, you know what, maybe you should be stopping doing this. And at the same time, it sounds like on all occasions that by the time they come into your company, they've gone beyond the pure joy. And it's yes. just the avoidance of the pure pain in the opioid scenario. Mm-hmm. It's about how to overcome the, these cravings, these cue induced cravings that they're experiencing, because I imagine that they can be very disabling for an individual who's just going about their everyday life and just somebody hands them a $100 bill and all of a sudden they're in an intense craving state or they meet somebody new for the first time and immediately they think of drugs. Mm-hmm. And so what, what is it you are then doing as a psychiatrist in those scenarios and where are you blending what you've learned and motivation doing to help those patients? Okay, let let me just step back and add one other element to the picture, and then I'll try to answer that question. Unfortunately, at least in the United States, the stimulant and opioids have really become very mixed together, and uh, literally, meaning that a lot of the methamphetamine and cocaine that people buy on the street now in the United States is contaminated with a drug called fentanyl, which is a synthetic that is laboratory-produced opioid that is extremely powerful. So nowadays, it is not unusual for someone who buys cocaine or methamphetamine, that's all they want to use, but then they have an opioid overdose because they didn't realize that fentanyl was in the same product. Or they test positive uh, urine drug screen shows, did you know that you were using fentanyl? No. I mean, doctor, I I was getting high in meth. That's what I wanted. I didn't intend to use this other drug, but it's there. So literally, the drugs are mixed together now in what people are buying. And so many of the people that we see now do have both addictions simultaneously, which just makes life that much more complicated. So... 
As a doctor in a clinic where we are providing treatment, a lot of the people who we see in our particular setting have been referred because they already have very serious medical complications from their injection drug use. So this is a maybe a narrow angle, but many of these people are young uh, individuals who have gotten infections on their heart valves from injection drug use, and in many cases have had to have heart surgery to replace and put in an artificial heart valve. And then in many cases have even continued to use after that. So they've already experienced an incredible degree of medical illness and surgery due to their drug use. So at that point, because things have gotten so bad medically, they are open to some kind of help. I mean, they're often ready for something. And what we find is that a lot of times people really do want to get off the opioids because, as I said, at a certain point with the opioids, it becomes more of almost a job. In other words, they're really not enjoying it that much. It's more, I have to use, I have to get up in the morning and figure out every day, how am I going to get my drug, use it, let it wear off, get some more. It, it becomes a full-time job, and they're not getting much pleasure out of it. Plus, when they do go into withdrawal, it's so unpleasant. So if we can offer a medication that will help them deal with that and not have to go use illegal drugs, they are really appreciative. And that this is something to stress, is that we do have really effective medications for opioid use disorder. Methadone has been around for many years. And then in more recent years, we have buprenorphine, which in the United States at least is sold as Suboxone. And these are medications for opioid use disorder that really allow people to feel normal, not have the drug craving, not have the withdrawal, and allow them to resume functioning quite normally. And they, they work really well, and a lot of patients really want to be on them. So that's a good thing. That brings them to us. We have something to offer that really helps. A lot of the patients we see are continuing to use the methamphetamine, and they're not as interested in stopping that. They mostly say, that makes me feel good, and, and they're not viewing that in the same way. So one thing is the fact that we do have medication to offer brings them into treatment. It keeps them engaged with helping professionals where we can at least be working on developing that relationship and hopefully helping them make additional changes for their overall well-being. There's a difference in how they view the two drugs, but fortunately we have something that they want that brings them to us. Now, as far as using motivational interviewing, you know, MI is generally regarded as, you know, it's always listed as one of the effective interventions for substance use disorder. And certainly, you know, in the realm of alcohol and to some degree tobacco, there's good evidence for efficacy, especially for people at the milder end of alcohol use disorder. Even fairly brief MI interventions can be quite effective. I would have to say that for people with advanced or severe stimulant use disorder, cocaine and methamphetamine, there's not a lot of evidence that MI as a brief standalone treatment is particularly effective because of the magnitude, the enormity of the problem takes more than that. Now, having said that, I think almost everyone who works in this field, and I agree, would say that MI and an MI approach is important to incorporate in a more comprehensive approach to treatment. So it's not to abandon MI by any means, but we shouldn't overestimate its impact. So if somebody was coming relatively new into this type of work, 
they would be unwise to think that, oh, I can do three or four sessions of MI and the person who has methamphetamine use disorder is going to stop. And they would be sorely disappointed and frustrated. So having realistic expectations of the impact, I think, is very important. I think the essential features of the spirit of MI and basic use of ORs and looking for change talk is the same ORs being open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries, the basic skills of communicating and then looking for people's speech that favors change and reinforcing it. These core elements of MI are the same in this population as with anybody else. Let me come back to MI spirit. When you think about stigma and you think about shame and how people are viewed in society. If you think about somebody who is a quote heroin addict. Now, in our profession, and I would strongly advocate that we don't use the word addict. For most people, the word addict has a pejorative connotation. And so I would recommend, and I think everyone in this field would say that a person who uses heroin or a person with opioid use disorder is the proper way to refer to an individual or a person with methamphetamine use disorder, not a heroin addict, because that sort of conjures up a very negative picture, at least for a lot of people. But if a person in society is thought of as a heroin addict, a crackhead, a meth user, an injection drug user, those conjure up very negative images in for in society and for people about themselves. So society looks at them very negatively and they don't feel so good about themselves for being in that state. Add to that the fact that many people who have these addictions are engaged in criminal activity to support their drug use. It's not that they were criminals to start with, but they have no other way to afford the drug. And in many of the uh, young women we see, and it's true for young men as well, but especially in the young women, prostitution or sex work is a very common way for them to try to survive. So you think about that constellation of an injection, heroin, and meth user who's a prostitute or engaged, let's say, in selling drugs to support their own habit. I mean, just think about the amount of shame and stigma that that person faces. And often these people have had very negative experiences with healthcare professionals as well. We saw a patient yesterday, she was hospitalized with heart valve infection, a lovely young woman. She was there with her mother, very concerned in the hospital. And she told us that at the other, at a community farther away, they basically told her when she went for help in the emergency department, we don't have anything to offer you. You brought this on yourself. You know, you're a drug addict. We basically go away. So th these are real experiences in 2021 that people have. So imagine their concern about coming in to see a doctor uh, or being winding up in the hospital, and we're going to talk to you about your addiction. All this to say that the engagement, the first of the processes that we, we emphasize in motivational interviewing of engagement, of forming a therapeutic alliance based on trust and respect for the other person, an IU relationship with this individual. You're a person with struggles. And despite the fact that I regret that you're engaging in a number of these behaviors, which are harmful, you are a real person and that we care about you. That is so critical 
you know, to a degree that's much stronger than, you know, somebody talking about weight loss or I want to exercise more. I mean, those are very important health behaviors, but here's a person who is really fearful of being judged based on their experiences, fearful of being rejected. And the other thing is if you don't have a genuine sense of, I'm really here to be your ally and understand your plight and see if we can work together, they're not going to be honest. And honesty is another challenge that people who have serious drug use disorders kind of by necessity learn how to be dishonest. They learn how to lie or manipulate to get out of trouble or to get what they need. And they bring that, those behaviors sometimes into the consulting room. And so this issue of forming the relationship is not only important for them to feel safe, it also means they have to feel safe to tell you what's really going on. Otherwise, we can't be very helpful. So I, I really stress the MI spirit is not just a, a throwaway that we, we mentioned that in some slides and, oh, yes, yes, have MI spirit and be compassionate. And because, again, the in MI spirit, the notion of acceptance and the notion of the absolute value of the human being that no matter how kind of degraded or debased the person's current lifestyle is, forgive me for saying that, but they're living in a horrible situation and engaging in very undesirable behaviors, you're still a human being. And that's who we're here to connect with. And we hope that maybe we can help you with some of the behaviors. So I think I just want to stress that. A well, challenge... Yes, yes, please. It really is, is a very helpful reminder of just some of the real basic principles of what we're talking about, the basic principles of viewing another person as a person, as a human being, even if their life circumstances are really challenging or they're engaging in some of these behaviors that we shouldn't have their conditions or their diagnoses or their behaviors be the defining features of them, that they are human beings first and foremost. And if you approach them in that way, and from our standpoint, very much influenced by the MI spirit, where stigma isn't really, it doesn't fit with the MI spirit or shame inducing conversations isn't part of the MI spirit, that that is really central to what you do and central to helping conversations go in, a, in helpful directions. And, you know, also just maybe a helpful reminder for us who are doing this kind of work every day that an example like you shared there that in 2021, in a hospital setting, someone would go to seek medical care and be rejected in that way. And in essence, blaming the person for their condition. Well, it's a reminder that there's no shortage of the work that we do left for people to take part in or to be helped with. And I wonder if you could also talk a bit about, and maybe you were getting to this with, with acceptance, in particular, maybe autonomy supportive kind of principles. We talked before we started the recording about the urgency that practitioners might feel when working with people who are engaged in life-threatening behavior in an objective sense, in, in a non-judgmental way, the, the behaviors that they're engaging in are imminently life-threatening. And so therefore, it might lead to a sense of urgency on the part of the practitioner, be it a psychiatrist or a non-medical provider. And if you could speak a bit to that and how you think MI can help maybe reorient or refocus the practitioner in ways in the face of that urgency, in ways that can continue to be helpful in the conversation. I'm glad you brought that up. So 
the lethality, the immediate lethality of these conditions is striking. Literally yesterday, the U.S. Center for Disease Control released new figures that for the 12 months ending in August of 2020, there were 88,000 overdose deaths in the United States, which was a dramatic increase from the previous 12-month period. And there's a lot of reason to think that the pandemic has really fueled a huge increase in various forms of substance use, but including overdose deaths. And most of the patients that we see are young. They're in their 20s and 30s. And so to be working with young individuals who have very complicated medical complications and to know that it's a very real possibility that between this week and next week, this person could die of an overdose is very disturbing, especially if you're approaching them with a sense of compassion and connecting to them as a human being. If your compassion is there and your sense of forming a real relationship with someone that you care about and knowing that they could die in the next week or month is a real challenge to deal with and certainly can drive that very understandable so-called writing reflex that we talk about in motivational interviewing, the urge to, I've got to get in there and do something. I've got to save this person. This is just unacceptable. The problem being that if we get too much into a, a, I'm here to save you, this is what you've got to do, we, in many cases, just drive them away and they become less engaged. So that is a dilemma. How does MI help us with that? One is the notion of autonomy, which is another part of MI spirit, that tragic though it may be, people really do have control of their own lives, of their own decisions, and just reminding ourselves that we cannot force change on somebody. And instead, if I can be present, if I can be their companion, so to speak, in addressing change, if I can be either side and ready to engage when, as they are ready to engage in change, that's what I can do realistically. I don't have the power to impose a change on them. But I would say that challenge, which we deal with any kind of health behavior when doing motivational interviewing, is just that much more acute when we know that the person could die now. Not We're not talking about dying of lung cancer 30 years from now. We're talking about what happens tomorrow. Mm. So it does create an urgency that we have to be conscious of. I also uh, just want to make a side comment that because of this acute nature of these problems, I think it's really important to take care of ourselves as individual clinicians and the other members if we're in a team care setting to be very attuned to how this is affecting oneself and one's one's colleagues, one's the staff, and helping them process that because they can sort of get into it just as though they're they're working in a kind of crisis mode all the time. And I think that can have deleterious effects on the individual's health of the staff and on their effectiveness. And I think there's a risk of so-called burnout or another way to look at it is compassion fatigue that when you're really caring about people who are this much on the edge and are sometimes defeating your best efforts, so to speak, that can be hard and and people can wind up becoming distanced as a result. And then when there is a death, it's very important to be very present to one's colleagues, the members of one's team, because it does happen. It's happened in our team and, and it hits people hard. And so empathy for each other and ourselves, I think, is really important in this setting. 
And what strikes me about what you're saying, Roy, is so much about the potential opportunity to create success in the sense of helping someone make a positive change with their drug use. For an individual practitioner, it sounds like so much of what makes the outcome work is what happens at the front end, at the beginning stages of this process, particularly with stimulants. One of the things that struck me was it's almost like the invitation is to help someone who's used to going fast, the practitioner mm -hmm. has to be willing to go slow. Mm -hmm. to recognize this is going to take a bit of time. This idea of a brief intervention, it would be wonderful, but a brief intervention with a stimulant use disorder is probably quite a long brief intervention. Yes, yes. And to bring into that as well the, the importance of what it was that brought you into motivational development. And guess what? An awful lot of people who have been attracted to MI is that around the spirit and the, the music that that sings. And you referenced Kohot earlier on around that, that willingness to experience the other person without losing your ob objectivity. And as we listen to you talk about the drug users you're, you're describing, you know, they're living on the age of society. You know, they're modern day lepers. Mm -hmm. and, and a bit like the lepers in biblical stories, nobody wanted to be around them. And mm -hmm. it took really brave individuals to be willing to go and support the lepers of, of our society. Mm -hmm. But the, the risk was that they would catch leprosy. Mm -hmm. And I yes. guess what we're exploring is emotionally that the practitioner, uh, uh, Rory talked about, Rory Allen talked about this before working with, with psychiatric patients, being empathetic and going into the patient's world. We have to be careful that metaphorically we don't catch the leprosy. The mm -hmm. inverted commas, the madness, the, the chaos, mm -hmm. the fear, the apprehension, the potentially is informing the person's use of drugs. Mm -hmm. and then becoming that that experience and then it overpowering them or them losing sight of themselves. And I used to work in addictions and my understanding of the disease model is that mm -hmm. that's how we practitioners or other people catch the disease. We may not end up using the drugs, but we've lost sight of ourselves as we lose ourselves in the chaos of the drug use that we're trying to support. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is for anybody who is considering going into the world of supporting drug users, particularly amphetamines or uh, stimulants and opiates, so much is about is about your own self-care, about mm -hmm. being open to recognizing the experience that you're going to have in those moments are going to be full of fear because you're going to be with frightened people. Mm -hmm. And to recognize some of the fear you're experiencing, the desire to make them well, is actually what the client is communicating to you. And it's about how do you feel supported in that? And I guess one of the things to be curious about, given that you've been in this world for a long time in Roy, what is it that you have done to maintain your well-being that could help other people who are listening to this podcast today to think, okay, so here's someone who's been around this for a long time, still practicing, still on the straight and narrow. How did they do that? Well, you know, I guess I go back to how I was brought up. And, and I guess somehow or other, I mentioned about, I talked about Martin Boover and the IU relationship, and somehow I got that. I think my mother sort of was somebody who was taken by that, or mm. I think that's where that came from. Uh, my father was an internist, a medical doctor, and he clearly loved medicine. He loved being a good doctor, and in many ways, it was sort of his hobby 
as well. I mean, he loved reading medical journals and at night, you know, underlining with a red pen, you know, going through. Mm. I just remember him doing that. But he also really set limits as far as his work. You know, he had his work, but he also spent time at home with the family. He wasn't gone all the time, you know, nights and weekends he was there and he loved music. He played piano very well. He set an example that I grew up with, which is that you can be a doctor to whom the profession of medicine is deeply meaningful. It's not just a job, but having the rest of your life, your family life is equally important. And I think I've just always held that as a value. That, that was part of the value when I married my wife, who is also a physician, that we said to each other, if we're going to do this, we want to have our, our career. It's meaningful. It's a sense of purpose, but it is not going to just overrun the rest of our lives. So from the very beginning, family, family dinners, now our kids are grown, but reserving time for the rest of life and for relationships outside is exceptionally important. I guess that's what I would say. You're referencing really some basic fundamentals of of living. In hearing what you say about self-care and the model that your father set for you, and, and even thinking about the way that you interact and have conversations with your patients, it just gets back to some of the fundamentals that we talk about so often as far as self-care, the idea of balance and having a life outside your profession. And then as far as the work with patients, you know, just approaching them with compassion and, and care and respect. And so often, like you mentioned, you know, the MI spirit isn't just something you put on a slide and kind of gloss over. It is truly fundamental to just about each and every moment that you have with someone. I wanted to ask, and maybe we've already touched on this, two different questions. One is, do you feel like there are particular adaptations to MI that are relevant or are even somewhat uniquely relevant to working with people with opioid and or stimulant use disorders? Again, beyond the fundamentals of the spirit that we've talked about. And then the second one has to do particularly for people with opioid use disorders that are in specialized treatment programs, receiving medically assisted therapies Mm -hmm. like Suboxone, like you'd mentioned, how you feel like MI fits in those kinds of models that are also kind of regulated, right? As far Mm -hmm. as I don't work in those systems, but I I understand that there are rules that patients follow to be a part of those. And, you know, the idea of setting rules and doing MI Mm-hmm. for some might feel like counterintuitive or sort of at odds with each other. So again, any unique adaptations, sure. if yeah. at all? Well, let, let me, first, let me first start on whether both for opioids or uh, stimulants, so for, for both categories, we've talked quite a bit about engagement. Am I spirit and engagement relationship? But, you know, if we go through, am I talks about four processes, engaging, focusing, evoking, and planning. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about focusing. It is not unusual, especially on the stimulants, that the person, let's say, is not as ready to stop using. They might say, well, I'd like to cut down, or maybe they don't want to change it at all. So maybe the focus is not going to be on, certainly on abstinence, at least initially. We might hope for that. We might aspire for that to ultimately be the outcome. And I do believe that personally, as a doctor, that the best outcome for individuals that we're talking about would be abstinence from both opioids and stimulants. But that's not going to happen for everybody, or maybe is not going to happen anytime soon. 
So there are a lot of other possible and highly relevant change goals or target behaviors. So I'll just list off a few. So if abstinence might be the gold standard, reduction in use. So cutting down, if they want to work on that, meet them there on that. Simply engaging in treatment, simply being involved in counseling beyond maybe just basic medication management would be a goal. So going to sessions, even if your behavior is not changing, and I, I want to make a side comment on that. Richard Rawson, that's R-A-W-S-O-N, has been one of the national leaders in research on stimulant use disorder for decades now and continues to be very active. And had, they have a very effective quality program at University of California and Los Angeles, UCLA. One of the points he makes is that simply being attending treatment, being treatment retention is associated with reduced overdose deaths. Even if people aren't really stopping their use or even measurably reducing their use, people who stay in treatment are less likely to die than people who just drop out entirely. So the focus could simply be keep coming. And that's, I guess that's what they say in AA is just keep coming. So something good happens, at least in terms of avoiding the worst outcomes if people stay engaged in treatment. So that could be a focus. But the others become more specific around harm reduction. So if you have a person who elects to continue to inject drugs, well, syringe services, syringe exchange programs, which are now widely available. So using clean needles and clean syringes, having them decide to inject, use safer skin cleaning practices to avoid bacterial infection. I mean, these are things that can make a difference about you know, getting endocarditis, the heart valve infections, getting tested for and being treated if necessary for hepatitis C and HIV. There's now in many communities, they have fentanyl test strips so that people can test the drug that they're going to use to see if there's fentanyl in it so they don't accidentally overdose on the fentanyl. You know, that's harm reduction. It's acknowledging that the person is going to continue to use the drugs, they're going to continue to inject, but they'd like to avoid overdosing on a contaminant. Reducing sexual risky sexual behavior, because as I've mentioned, there's a big correlation, especially with the stimulants and risky sex, getting into safer housing, especially I've alluded to the fact that many of these young people are exploited. They may be involved in interpersonal violence situations. So even if they're going to keep using drugs, if we can help them move into a safer housing or, or get themselves out of dangerous situations where they're being harmed, believe it or not, there is some evidence, at least modest evidence, that exercise is beneficial in reducing stimulant use. So maybe the person is not ready to do anything else, but they want to start walking a mile or two a day. Any kind of positive behavior change that they can identify together with you that they'd like to work on helps them stay engaged in treatment, mm. maybe helps them do something that's going to make them a little bit safer. And if they have a positive experience of change in one area, that could be a stepping stone to more comprehensive changes. So I would say when it comes to the engaging uh, process, keeping a very, very wide net and not assuming that what we are here to work on is stopping drug use or even reducing drug use if they're not there yet. 
any kind of change that's constructive that they can come up with or that you can offer would be worthwhile. And again, there's a very strong push, I think, worldwide now for so-called harm reduction that acknowledges that people may or may not stop using, but there are positive changes they can make. Now, as far as one of the things about, about some adaptations, the adaptations is, I think, is perhaps more of an issue on the stimulants because of some of the complications of stimulants. So methamphetamine and cocaine have more deleterious effects on one's mental functioning. People who use, I'm in no way endorsing uh, heroin use or opiate use, but the big risks with opiate use are that you overdose and die or you get an infection from injecting it. But they don't cause nearly as much psychiatric or mental health deterioration. Whereas chronic use of stimulants can cause cognitive impairment, difficulties in executive function, in uh, more impulsivity, problems with attention. So it, it can affect cognition and can induce psychosis, paranoia, and aggression and violence. So there are a lot more behavioral problems associated with the stimulants than with opiates. And so that's where, you know, perhaps some modifications uh, might come into play. One is just if, if the person has some cognitive impairment, this may be slowing things down more. I think we always encourage people when they do reflections to keep them concise. Don't do lengthy, elaborate, more abstract reflections, which I don't think we should be doing anyway. But it's especially important to keep things a little more basic and a little more concrete uh, when we're reflecting with people who may have some cognitive impairment due to the drug use. Just a general sense of things are going to move more slowly. That would be an adaptation. And one other, and this kind of comes from my psychiatric experiences, at least we're taught in, in psychiatry that most people respond really well to empathic listening. Most people find that just to be very rewarding to have somebody who really is listening and conveying genuine understanding. But someone who's paranoid may actually feel threatened by a listener who is getting too close to their own feelings. They may feel a little bit invaded. So I guess I would be maybe a little bit cautious in gently providing empathy with someone who is currently exhibiting any kind of paranoid features, giving them, they need a little more space because they can feel easily threatened even by well-intended expressions of understanding and caring. So kind of respecting the space of the more paranoid methamphetamine or cocaine user. And in the same way, realizing that they do have, particularly when they're under the influence, they have the ability to be aggressive or even violent, not to be fearful of that. But again, just kind of give them a little more space than you might do in the average situation. Those would be the only modifications I can think of there in the way you communicate and interact with the person. Now, you mentioned about medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder, which, again, I would stress is quite effective, whether it be methadone or buprenorphine. Many, many patients do so much better, and they are so grateful to have gotten on these treatments. So I, I think they, it, it's important that they be offered. But if you are the prescriber, so, okay, I am a prescribing practitioner, I obviously do have authority over what I prescribe. And so in that sense, there is a power imbalance. There is a hierarchy there. The patient wants the medication, and I have to decide whether or not to prescribe it. 
And so we do have certain expectations. You need to keep your appointments. So, you know, is it okay that you skip your appointments and just text me and say, send in my medication? We get this. Uh, or we do have expectations for periodic urine drug testing and just at least to monitor and see where things, what's happening. And uh, maybe the person doesn't adhere to that. And then, of course, as a physician, whether you're in the US or UK or anywhere else, we're under regulatory uh, obligations about our own medical licenses, our ability to, to prescribe these medications that we have to be mindful of. So there is a hierarchical situation built in if you are the prescriber. That does alter it a bit. But, you know, in another way, you can still use motivational interviewing and just set certain boundaries. Well, there's certain things I can do and there's certain things I can't do. There are decisions you can make or not make. And just be clear about what the expectations and boundaries are. And then within those, I think uh, you can still use motivational interviewing. I don't think of myself as similar to a correctional setting, but you know, I know that in many countries, and including in Scandinavia, there's been a big push to use motivational interviewing within the correction system. Well, people don't have complete autonomy. They can't tell their correctional counselor, well, I think I want to be released and be done. There are boundaries in life that are beyond our choice, but within those constraints, we do have choices and we do have a degree of autonomy. So I would say that be clear about what the rules are, clear about the expectations, be willing to be a little bit flexible when you can, uh, if you're a prescriber, but basically define and clarify what the boundaries are. And then within that, the person still has a lot of autonomy of choices that they can make and where do they want to go with those. So relationship sounds to be such an important message and what you're saying is the relationship, first of all, between the almost like the treatment organization and the practitioner to create the space for them to know that there's a wide horizon of potential treatment outcomes rather than just getting off drugs. And that's Mm -hmm. going to be promoted by the culture that the organization manifests for everybody Mm -hmm. to live towards. Mm -hmm. But also that what you're describing just now about that, the relationship that we have with each other where, you know, there are things that we can ask of our clients or patients and equally that we are willing to give to them. So there is mm-hmm. this give and take, but it's about maintaining our own well-being, maintaining our integrity as an individual and as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. That's a very important message to the patient as well, which is, look, I respect myself. And in doing that, implicitly what we're endeavoring to do is try and teach other people how to respect themselves by experiencing someone who wants to be helpful yet maintains their own boundaries. And then what you were describing earlier on with just recognizing this person has an impairment because of their drug use. So mm-hmm. think about these things when you're talking to them in your relationship with mm-hmm. them. Take these things into account and continue to be caring. So make adaptations to what you've been taught in general in relation to motivation. You know, shorten your reflections, make them a bit more concrete. Recognize this person's process is inhibited because of the brain function. That's the reality of who this human being is. Mm-hmm continue to see them as the Tao and to to treat them with that. So again, just that reinforcing of it's in the relationship that most of what it is we're trying to achieve is going to take place. And these relationships are within organizations, within our treatment relationships, but also relationships with ourselves as well as practitioners. And if we're paying attention to maintaining good relationships at those three levels, 
then things are potentially going to move much more efficiently and effectively for everybody that we come into contact with. As is often the case at this point in the conversation, Roy, we would say, you know, again, we could keep going, but I'm conscious that we're already speaking for over an hour. And so what I would like to do, if it's okay, is begin to draw us towards a close. And at this point, normally what we ask our guests is, other than what you're doing in your day-to-day work and your specialism with motivational living and your treatment and drugs and alcohol or drugs, is there anything else that's going on for you that's catching your attention or anything that you're enjoying doing? It may be work-related, it may be life-related that you'd want to share with us so we can talk to you about for a few minutes. Well, sure. I think this would tie in in terms of this work-life balance here in North Carolina. It's just about 8.30 in the morning. And at 9 o'clock, my son is going to bring over our granddaughter, who today is 18 months old. So this is her one and a half birthday. So I'll be uh, taking care of her for the next uh, several hours, as I now do every Friday. So that is a, a source. Anybody who I think has become a grandparent would agree is a source of tremendous joy. And so so I, I retired from the Veterans Health Administration a little over, just over a year ago, after 30-some years there. But I knew that I wanted to continue being involved in my profession because it matters to me. Both it's rewarding to practice, but also because of the severity of this problem out there, this addiction problem, I feel somewhat of an obligation to keep both practicing and also teaching because there's a need and, and I, I have things I can offer. And so what I figured was would be good for me is to retire and take a different position and work half time. So I moved over to the University of North Carolina as a halftime uh, faculty member, which this has really been sort of a, a wonderful adaptation. And part of that is I don't work on Fridays except for doing cool things like this. And then on Fridays, I take care of our granddaughter. So it's great. I mean, <laughs> I really get a kick out of it. And this was even before COVID. I started, so I wasn't just part of the COVID fad. I started baking bread, specifically challah, you may be familiar with. On fr- Every Friday, I bake challah. And so when I have our granddaughter, Emmy, over, she sort of helps in what way, whatever way she can. So that's sort of becoming a mutual project. So that this all gives me tremendous joy and is a great antidote to the stress of people in their uh, overdoses and endocarditis and such. Mm. Helpful reminders of the work-life balance in action. Happy uh, year and a half birthday to your granddaughter. Yes. It's a nice model to set also and to, to hear how somebody's evolving their career and creating opportunities to continue to pursue their interests and also make sure they're attending to other parts of life. So we appreciate that. Roy, if people had questions or wanted to follow up with you, whether it's about professional things, maybe someone wants this challah bread recipe. I don't know. That could be of interest to some. Would you be open to people contacting you? And if so, how can they reach you? Yes, I'll give you my email, which is Roy, R-O-Y underscore Stein, S-T-E-I-N at med, that's M-E-D dot U-N-C dot E-D-U. And of course, I'm looking forward to next Thursday, I'll be uh, co-leading a workshop with Seb. Now I can call, start calling you Seb. So you and I are going to be working together next week. And we need to right. get our final slides in. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah, we need to, to, to hash that out. And I appreciate uh, you inviting me to do that with you now for several years, maybe three or yes, four years now. For the It's the Governor's Institute who puts on conference through, is it the Society for Addiction Medicine in North Carolina? Is that the group? I or? guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, looking forward to that for sure. Well, I appreciate, I just want to say, I really appreciate the two of you. And I feel like I've learned a lot and Glenn, you've kind of helped formulate back for me a lot of ways to look at what I've told you and what I'm doing. So I really, it's been been very rewarding for me to kind of reflect more on, on these processes. Well, again, as Seth was really said, we really appreciate you giving up your time. And the joy was very clear to see when you just mentioned your granddaughter. And even now, as you, there's just a shine that comes in your face. Uh, it yeah. looks like it, it, it's just the, the, the granddaughter just brings joy into your life. We wish you every happiness for the rest of the day and acknowledge the time and effort and your contribution, not just to yeah. this conversation, but to the work that you've been doing throughout your career. And... The, your willingness to maintain that gift that it sounds like you, did you feel that you gained from your mother and your father, which was the I do, and your willingness to just continue to allow that vein to nav- help you navigate the path of life and to in your relationships with everyone you came into contact with. It has been a joy for us to spend the last hour and a half or so with you, and we wish you all the very best. Thanks for coming, and, and thanks for chatting with us. Sure. Well, it was my pleasure. Can I just make make a separate comment? I find, you know, in working with older people, I guess I'm one of the older people now, just not even about addiction, but in patients, and you're concerned about depression and, you know, how severely depressed is this person? And if you ask them about, if they have grandkids, mm. and then you ask them about their grandkids, if you get that, that glow, which I know I have, yeah. but I've seen it in others, to me, it's a very encouraging sign that this person is not completely, you know, beyond the pale mm. with their depression, you know, like tapping into something that seems almost universal. I mean, yes. you know, there's situations where it isn't, but often, you know, a person's complaining about how miserable life is. And then you mention the grandchildren and it's like, they just, mm. uh, they light up. It's a useful clinical finding as well. It's well, a, a wonderful experience to have yeah. oneself. Find the flame and give it some more air. Or just find the, find the, find the, the flame, flame and fl- flame and flame it. No, yeah, fan it. Exactly. find yeah. the flame and yes. fan the flame. And fan it, yes. Yeah. All right, well, you guys, this was a pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Right, bye. Thanks so much, Roy. We appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Thank you, man. Bye, everybody. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.